To begin with, I'd like to kind of name what is traditionally the centerpiece of the way the Buddhist teachings are described, and, and it's in the language of the Buddha. He said, basically, that I teach one thing and one thing only, and that's suffering and freedom from suffering. That's the core of what he meant to offer. To share with those of you that haven't uh, are fairly new, um, my own background is that my first introduction to Buddhism was in a high school world religions class. We were introduced to all these major religions. And I came out of it convinced that the one religion I definitely was not interested in was Buddhism. <laughs> and, you know, Taoism had all that great nature stuff and Hinduism, these colorful expressions of the divine and so on and so on. But Buddhism, this suffering business, to my adolescent brain that was, you know, hedonistic as all get out and just, you know, I wanted to have a good time, this was not a match for me. So I discarded it. And um, it wasn't until about oh, 15 some years later, that I re-encountered Buddhism. I'd had plenty of time to suffer, <laughs> so I knew that it was the first noble truth that this is universal was a truth. And actually, it was a um, relief to hear the first noble truth that everyone suffers. Um, because then it wasn't my personal flawed problem, you know, it wasn't me that was encumbered, it was just how it was. But the second part of the one teaching, freedom from suffering, it was an incredible intuitive resonance that freedom from suffering really is possible. And it's not the kind of freedom the way I had imagined when I was in high school of some empty void um, that was no fun. It was really the freedom of um, a profound kind of a happiness and joy in realizing the truth of what we are, in realizing um, that the awareness and presence that's here really is our nature, and that these bodies and minds and changing moods and so on come and go. But there's a refuge in the truth of what we are that brings an incredible joy and spontaneity and fun. <laughs> you know, so that, it reappealed to me, in a it appealed to me in a different way. And I remember hearing in one of my first retreats about uh, one Buddhist teacher, Munindraji, who was asked why he practiced. And his response was that, he said, so that when I walk into town each day, I can see the small purple flowers by the side of the road. That was his response. His teaching was um, also a beautiful one. And this is, every, every Buddhist teacher has their own particular flavor. His teaching was to live the life fully. Everything reveals itself if, we're will, if we have the courage and that's what it is, it's courage, this greatness of heart, to live the life fully. When we do, when we bring that full presence, uh, we realize that promise that the Buddha made for happiness. So what I'd like to explore tonight, and I'm going to pick it up in two weeks, I'm away next week, but I'm going to explore tonight and then in two weeks uh, the pathways to happiness. 
And tonight I'll explore it in terms of how we relate to our inner experience and then in two weeks really how happiness naturally arises when we're awake with each other. So those of you that like to know what's on the schedule, that's it. (laughs) That's what's coming. So maybe a reflection just to begin, just to kind of tune in a little. You might just close your eyes for a moment. This isn't a long meditation. Sense really where you are in this inquiry about happiness. Do you experience happiness much, what you consider happiness? Maybe in the last few days or today, was there happiness? What signals happiness for you? (laughs) Try to incorporate phenomena here. What brings up happiness for you? What are the circumstances, if they're circumstances, that are conducive to happiness? Are you happy right now? What's it like if you are? Or what's your remembrance of happiness like? Okay, come on back. We'll keep on exploring and we'll do a meditation on happiness at the end, but just to sense where it is for you a little. The Buddha talked about two kinds of happiness. And the first kind, the Pali word pamoja, is really the happiness of sense pleasures. Pamoja. And as we know, it's a, it's a fleeting happiness, but we enjoy it. It's uh, whether it's the happiness of something that tastes good, or sometimes it's superficial and very, very fleeting, like a very well-aimed compliment can give, you know, the biochemistry of happiness, you know. Somebody says to you, really, you're 63, you only look 61, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Our team wins the Super Bowl or whatever, which is interesting, you know, there's been great research on the biochemistry of happiness, and especially for males, chemistry goes up when you win. So, pamoja. This is the happiness that's hitched to pleasure in in the senses. And um, just to say this can be a very wholesome form of happiness and actually one that's very conducive to awakening. It's described in terms of the meditation text that we need to be able to touch and open to our capacity for pleasure um, as a way of really having kind of the space and balance and softness of heart to really open to what's here. So arousing wholesome mind states, as they say in the Buddhist texts, is just is a part of the path. 
This is pamoja. In other words, when you meditate on what you're grateful for, when you sense what you love, the metta meditation, when you meditate on goodness, on beauty, reflect in any way, that arouses pamoja, this happiness of the senses. And it gives, and it taps us into this kind of a taste of the inner freedom. Now, as we know, pamoja, you can all intuit that there is a real shadow side to pamoja, which is when we get fixated, when we have to have things a certain way, our pursuit of happiness turns to suffering. We're going to spend some time talking about it. So pamoja is the happiness we take in sense pleasures. And we can either have it, hold it with open hands and have it really be part of the spiritual awakening or grasp on and have it cause suffering. The second type of happiness that the Buddha talked about is sukha. Okay? And sukha arises through natural presence. When there's no controlling, when there's simply an awakeness, an openness, it's the happiness that, that can be described as the inner freedom of experiencing really who we are. We're happy when we're at home. We're at happy when we really recognize the fullness, the tenderness, the natural radiance of being. That's sukha. That's the deep happiness. The Dalai Lama starts many of his public talks saying, everybody wants to be happy, nobody wants to suffer. And then the teachings that unfurl from that are, yet, the ways that most of us pursue happiness most of the time don't deliver the very thing we want. So this is, I want to spend a little time with the shadow side of Pamoja, the way we habitually pursue happiness. And it's basically, the teaching is, when our happiness depends on us having things the way we want them, when they're going our way, when life's going our way, then there's going to be suffering. Because we'll be on a roller coaster and sometimes we'll, things are great and sometimes they're not, and we're going to be constantly tensing against what we have to lose and holding on to what we can gain. So for most of us, it's a ride. We're pretty, you know, there's that saying, you know, we don't, don't sweat the small stuff. Most of us do sweat the small stuff. Have you noticed? I mean, that we do get uptight when someone takes our parking place or we're kept waiting at an appointment or anxious about upcoming social events. And in a deeper way, we all are very hitched to having things go our way, as in not feeling sick, not having... Um, painful things happen to people we love, not losing life. So these are the noble, this is the Buddha's noble truth, that if our happiness is dependent on having pleasure and not having pain, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. We're always going to be trying to control and manipulate our experience to have it a certain way. And here's the bottom line. If we're pursuing pleasure, anything we're pursuing, the act of pursuing pushes it away. If we're pursuing love, the pursuing of it takes us away from experiencing how it is right here and now. If we're pursuing peace, the act of trying to get it 
takes us away from where it lives. It's like being in a motorboat and trying to find a, you know, like trying to motor through the water and trying to find a place where there's no waves, but we're just motoring through creating more and more waves, right? The answer, throttle back, get still, arrive here. So the pursuing of pleasure, the pursuing and holding on gets us in trouble. The given is that everything's changing and we can't control that it's going to be pleasant and unpleasant and pleasant and unpleasant. So one student at the Insight Meditation Society described our pursuit of happiness, our grabbing onto pleasure as getting rope burn because he says like holding on to a rope that's moving and you get rope burn. And the basic misunderstanding, it's sometimes described as if only mind. And I think that's a really good description that there's no happiness if we have this idea of if only things could be this way. If only we could get this the partner that we're wanting or the body that we want or our child to cooperate then it would be okay. Or if only something could be different. So this is the shadow side of Pamoja where we're constantly moving towards or moving away from something. Rita Rudner says this, she says, I love to shop after a bad relationship. I don't know. I buy a new outfit and it makes me feel better. It just does. Sometimes if I see a really great outfit, I'll break up with someone on purpose. (laughs) So if only mine. So it's really interesting to say, what are we hitched to? What is the... What is it that we in our lives are sensing if it was only one way? Now, for some people, there's different kinds of being hitched. For some of us, it's like an urgent thing where we're very obsessed and addicted. And that is the most um, obvious kind of um, anguish. It has to be different to be okay. Some of you might remember this story, which I think is pretty, a pretty interesting illustration about a man and a woman on an airplane in the first class section. And the woman sneezes, takes out a tissue, gently wipes her nose, and then shudders violently for 10 to 15 seconds. The man goes back to his reading. Some of you remember this? A couple of you, yeah. A few minutes later, the woman sneezes again, takes a tissue, gently wipes her nose, and shudders again violently. The man gets interested about the shuddering. A few more minutes pass, and again she sneezes, takes her tissue, wipes her nose, and shudders. And the man, this time, can't restrain his curiosity. So he turns to her and says, you know, you sneezed three times. You've wiped your nose and then shuddered violently. Are you okay? And she goes, oh, I'm sorry if I disturbed you. I have a rare condition. She says, when I sneeze, I have an orgasm. And the man was a little embarrassed, but he was even more curious, and he said, you know, I've never heard of that before. What are you taking for it? And the woman responded, pepper. <laughs> so the, this, here's the teaching, that if our sense of life and aliveness, here we are, and the idea is to live the life fully, if it gets contracted around having to pursue a certain experience, we are really um, in a trance. 
and we're left out of what we really cherish. Now, what we fixate on changes over time. We all know that. What mattered to us when we were an adolescent uh, doesn't matter so m Well, maybe that's not true. I don't know. <laughs> Ramdas, uh, who many of you have heard of, um, was at a conference for aging, and he described a story of an elderly man walking in the woods past a pond, and there's this little sound, psst, down here. And so he looks down and he sees a frog, and the frog says, if you kiss me, I'll become a beautiful princess, and I'll be yours for the rest of my life. So he picks the frog up, puts it in his pocket, and keeps walking. Then here's another, psst, hey, hey, aren't you going to kiss me? And the guy keeps walking and goes, nope, at this point I think I'd rather a talking frog. <laughs> so, so our fixation changes, what we want changes, but the energy is the same. And it's what um, has been called a trance, and, and the Buddha called it a dream also, which is that we want happiness, but we have this if-only mind, if only I get the person to love me, the approval, the accomplishment, the w accumulate what I need to accumulate, a better personality, a better body, then I'll be okay. And as long as in this moment there's anything, any belief that in order to be happy something has to change, then the potential for happiness becomes obscured, becomes removed. So take a moment, if you will, just to reflect on your life again. And in a way you're just taking stock right now. And just sense, is there anything in the way of being happy right now? Is there an if-only, something you're waiting for to change? As if you're on your way maybe to being happy, but something has to fall in place. Is there something going on right now that you believe as long as this is going on you can't be happy? Is your happiness hitched to an idea of how things have to be? What is it you're believing your happiness is dependent on? What if you didn't believe that? just for a moment, and it takes a bit of bravery. What if you didn't believe that, that you had to have things a certain way? 
just to experiment with that. It's like Henry David Thoreau saying that we spend our life fishing only to find it wasn't fish we were after. Whatever it is we think has to be different, is missing, or is wrong, it's not true. But the thinking it's true keeps us fishing. Okay, now, opening your eyes if you'd like. The teachings, the spiritual teachings, and the most recent batch of research on happiness um, really um, reinforce each other in an interesting way. And I just share a couple of points from this because there's been a lot in the last eight years, a whole field of happiness research has opened up. One thing that many of you probably have heard about is that we each have a set point for happiness, a kind of biochemical set point that is a product of our conditioning and our genetics and our you know, pers- you know, personal history and a million other factors, but we have a kind of a set point. And what that means is that when we get what we thought we want, we might have a spike in our perception of how happy we are, but it levels back to our set point. And when something terrible happens that we imagine would deprive us of our happiness, death of a, of a dear one, that kind of thing, we have a spike again where we you know, get miserable for a while, but we kind of end up returning to our habitual set point. So that's one thing. Another, which again challenges this whole idea of what we think we're fishing after. The next, is, this is research on aging, which I think is interesting, is that it's been found that um, the, the idea was that you get older and you get grumpier. And uh, the actual finding is that more people actually get happier. So it's a kind of interesting when you think of it, that here these bodies are going and you're losing things, people, your mind, etc. And yet, statistically speaking, we get happier. Now, how is that possible? And what has been found is that um, there is often, because our very nature is to wake up, a kind of wisdom that comes over time that recognizes it's impermanent, this life. It's impermanent, there's limited time, and there's a motivation to enjoy the moments. There was a quote in this article from Psychology Today that went like this, it said, we search for happiness in eager anticipation and joyful memories, but we're better off paying attention to each moment as it passes. So that's research point number two. The third, and I'll be talking about this more in two weeks, is that many of you know this, it's very intuitive, but our well-being is very much linked to our sense of connectedness. The less we're self-absorbed and the more there's a sense of belonging to the web of life, the more happiness there is. So pets, serving others, belonging, okay? Point number four is that there's been a lot of research on the effect of meditation on happiness. And what's found is that when instead of trying to pursue what we want and avoid what we don't want, we do this practice of presence. 
which is really deconditioning the pursuing and the avoiding, okay? Does that make sense so far? That that's what we're doing here? We're coming into stillness and not pursuing our agenda of getting something or avoiding something. The more that we practice in that way, the more there's actually a shift and there's a, sh a relaxing of the kind of wanting, fearing self, that sense of a self trying to get somewhere. And there's more of a quality of presence. It's, it's described as actually um, a shift from the, the left prefrontal fight-flight mechanisms to the right prefrontal, which is to do with unitive experience and happiness. So meditation, this presencing, coming here, not chasing after what we think will make us happy, not resisting what we're afraid of, but this hereness actually shifts our biochemistry and in time changes our set point. So that's my advertisement for meditation. Come again next week. And <laughs> so just to summarize, the, the re I don't necessarily... Western research on science is kind of nice because it in some way validates what we've intuited in some way. But it very directly points to what in Buddhism are called the three characteristics, or the three teachings about reality and really about our potential for happiness. It points to the first teaching, which is called dukkha, or discontent, which is really that any time we want it different, there's going to be discontent. It's only in the hereness, the absolute accepting of how it is, that we get off that roller coaster. The second of those truths, the three characteristics, is called the Nietzsche, and it's that it's always changing. So if your happiness is dependent on holding on to someone or something or some state of mind, no go. It's always changing. The third of the characteristics is called Anatta. It means no self. And we intuit this, even though it's a little hard to describe, that when we're caught up in a strong self-centeredness, there's not happiness. When we realize our belonging to the web of life, when we realize what's called emptiness, that there's nothing solid or substantial, it's just an idea of a self, a story we're living off of, we can enter the moment with a fluidity. It's like the... Um, the poet and writer Wei Wu Wai puts it in a way I think is great. He says, why is it that you're so unhappy? Because 99% of what you do is for yourself. And there isn't one. <laughs> <laughs> There's a Western version of that, which is a little different, which is many of you have heard of, which is people think that angels fly because they have wings. Angels fly because they take themselves lightly. So this is the third of the characteristics that if there's, there is no self and when we believe in one and operate off one and fixate on a sense of a self, because it's not true, there's suffering. We suffer from whatever perception is not true. So pamoja, this happiness of the senses, there's a lot of potential to get caught in the shadow side. And I, and I spend some time with it because if we're awake to that, if we notice, oh, yet again I've been spending my time fixating on what needs to be different, yet again I'm living in this of-only mind, there's a question we can ask, which is, is it not true 
that what we long for is already here. Now what might happen is you'll ask that question. Let's say you have a longing for peace. Is it right already here? And you might say, no, right now I'm agitated. But that means you're not fully here. Take some time. Arrive. Just come home. Our refuge is hereness. So Pamoja, this fixating, gets us in trouble. But that doesn't mean there's not a very um, skillful, wise way to enjoy the natural pleasures of the world and not only enjoy them but to have it actually nourish our awakening. And in this, basically, the ways that we do this, very much a part of the Buddhist teachings, actively, intentionally reflecting on what we're grateful for. Anytime you think of a person and reflect on their goodness, anytime you look at someone and see the, um, look to see the spirit that's shining through those eyes, that's intentional. You're directing your intention and attention and it awakens a sense of pleasure, of happiness. Just reflect for a moment. This is again Pamoja, and yet very wholesome Pamoja. I hope you like this language, wholesome Pamoja. That's one to take home. Okay, so just again, let your eyes close and, and let your attention go inward. And take a moment to arrive here. Just give yourself that gift of sensing, okay, what's happening? And breathing with and feeling into the moment. This very brief meditation is a meditation on what you love. And the invitation is to just ask yourself, what do I love? And whatever comes up, whatever comes up is good. Just what do I love? It might be that what you love is a, um, is a kind of sushi or a bagel or what you love is a sunset or what you love is the crickets in the summer or what you love is a person. or what you love is meditating and getting quiet. And to add on to this, as you reflect on what you love, whisper it very softly, but very sincerely with your heart. Don't worry that everybody else is also whispering. It makes it kind of nice. So again, this is an invitation not to be shy, just to start whispering well, when you reflect what is it you love, you can name a person or name something beautiful. And we'll just do this for a minute or two. Please begin.
What is it you really love? Sensing something that you really love and just allowing yourself to inhabit the loving. Sense the loving presence that's here. Sense the space of awareness, the tenderness, when you're remembering what you love. So in this first kind of happiness, there's the suffering when we fixate, and there's the um, wholesome qualities that arise when we very intentionally sense what's beautiful and good. Now, at the end of the meditation, I invited you to sense the loving itself, and this begins to point to the, uh, what's called the more profound kind of happiness, which is really the happiness that is not hitched to anything. It naturally arises when there's a purity and fullness of presence. It naturally arises when we're not seeking after anything, when we're totally at home in life just as it is. So what helps us to come home in that way? There's a, um, a little phrase I saw a few months ago, goes like this, it says, the mind is constantly trying to figure out what page it's on in the story of itself. Close the book, burn the bookmark, end of story. Now the dancing begins. (laughs) And I like that because in a way, the beginning of this realizing sukha, this happiness that arises from the purity of presence is we do a little bit to help us let go. We recognize the stories and let go of some of the stories in the mind. We might do a reflection like we just did on remembering what matters. We, it's like a garden. We're kind of loosening the soil and creating an atmosphere that's receptive. But the freedom of sukha the profound liberation comes when we stop all the doings and just be. Simply notice and allow the life that's here. That means whatever arises. One of the stories that has stuck with me the most over the years was a man that uh, was at a retreat and at at our week-long or residential retreats, you have the whole range of experience. Many people go through a roller coaster where there's, you know, anxiety or restlessness or boredom, and then there's deep stillness and peace, and then there's the open flowing of the heart, and then there's the vulnerable, you know, it just goes in and out. 
And at the end, his, his comment was, he said, now I understand. The joy is in getting real. That this is sukha. The joy of getting real, of bringing a full presence to the realness that's here, moment to moment. And there's this recognition that there's more happiness in realizing that we're the space, like the sky that can have any weather come through, there's more happiness in realizing what we are, this radiant wakefulness, than, and that there's nothing we have to defend against. The sky doesn't have to control the weathers, the storms, the rain, the brightness. It doesn't have to control anything. That the happiness is knowing, it's, it's Chogyam Trungpa described it, that it's all workable because we have the space for what arises. In the Tibetan tradition, this happiness is described with the language of the lion's roar, and I love that, which is this kind of confidence in life, a kind of spontaneity and exuberance, because when we realize this wholeness of what we are, when you realize you're the ocean, you're not afraid of the waves. You can celebrate them. So the deep insight that comes with this practice of real presence, this kind of courageous being with, is that our happiness is not hitched to any external. It really doesn't matter if somebody dies, it doesn't matter if the greatest good fortune comes upon us, our mood will go up and down, but the deep happiness this freedom of realizing who we are, that liberating happiness comes when we just inhabit the silence, the presence, the awakeness. This is Dorothy Hunter. She says, in this choiceless, never-ending flow of life, there is an infinite array of choices one alone brings happiness to love what is. One alone brings happiness to love what is. So how do we love what is? What happens if in the moment our biochemistry is feeling fear towards what is, our grief about what is? Are we going to then say, oh, I'm not doing this in a spiritual way? Sukha's out of reach, you know? We start right where we are, always. If there's anything you come away with, this coming home to presence means start right where you are with whatever the biochemistry or attitudes or beliefs of the moment. It's okay. You can say yes to what's here. You don't have to love it, maybe, in the full-blown emotional kind of love. The deepest love is an offering of our presence. Loving what is means this willingness to be awake right here. It all comes down to sincerity, really. If you're sincere about honestly being here, even though sometimes your mood will be, I don't like this, I don't want to be here, sometimes you'll shut off, sometimes you'll, you know, distract yourself, keep coming back to the sincerity of what matters. It's a given that you're going to be reactive. 
that some moments you're going to like and some moments you're not going to like. That's a given. Start where you are. Can I be with what's right here? There's a uh, story of a Tibetan stone carver that I've always liked. and He wasn't a formal practitioner. He composed his own songs and chants instead of using traditional ones and so on. And as the story goes, when he grew ill, instead of despairing, he grew strangely happy. His family was concerned. They called in all the doctors and the masters. And his son told him to remember all the teachings that he had ever heard. The old stonecutter spoke some words that, that I find really comforting. He said, I've forgotten them all. I've forgotten all the teachings. But anyway, there's nothing to remember. Everything's an illusion. But I'm confident that all is well. <laughs> I'm confident that all is well. It's absolutely natural to contract and think that something's wrong. It's absolutely natural. There are going to be life circumstances that you're going to hit later tonight or tomorrow or next week where it absolutely, your mind is going to believe this is wrong, this is bad, I'm in trouble, something around the corner bad's going to happen. That's a given. But here's the invitation that the Buddha offered that has been what has really carried through the generations. That we have the capacity to notice the reactivity to pause and to come home into presence. When we can come home into this here-ness and meet what's arising with what I sometimes think of as an undivided awareness, as this simple presence that just notices and allows, there's a magic, an alchemy that happens that that sense of a separate self at war dissolves. And what's revealed is an empty, radiant presence. This is sukha. Any moment that we're in conflict and at war, living in the story of a separate self, that we can pause and notice, that we can have the courage to come here, just to this moment and meet it with somewhat of what I describe with the smile, with that kind of space that makes room. This alchemy is possible. So just to kind of summarize, this pamoja is really where we mostly get trapped and it's pervasive and it's human, that we get caught with if-only mind, thinking that our well-being is hitched to getting something or having things a certain way. That's part of the conditioning. And there's a wholesomeness to when pleasure arises, really allowing ourselves to enjoy it with an open-handedness and even directing our mind to where the beauty is and the goodness, to remembering what we love. That is one of the gateways. And with a natural presence, we can touch sukha, which really the gateway there is loving what is. Remembering what we love, loving what is. Here's a, a poem. This is called So Much Happiness. You can close your eyes and we'll just, after this poem, we'll just meditate a little. 
remembering what we love and loving what is. It is difficult to know what to do with so much happiness. This is Naomi Nye writing. It's difficult to know what to do with so much happiness. With sadness, there's something to rub against, a wound to tend with lotion and cloth. When the world falls in around you, you have pieces to pick up, something to hold in your hands, like ticket stubs or change. But happiness floats. It doesn't need you to hold it down. It doesn't need anything. Happiness lands on the roof of the next house singing and disappears when it wants to. You're happy either way. Even the fact that you once lived in a peaceful treehouse and now live over a quarry of noise and dust cannot make you unhappy. Everything has a life of its own. It too could wake up filled with possibilities of coffee cake and ripe peaches and love even the floor which needs to be swept, the soiled linens and scratched records. Since there's no place large enough to contain so much happiness, you shrug, you raise your hands and it flows out of you into everything you touch. You are not responsible. You take no credit as the night sky takes no credit for the moon but continues to hold it and share it and in that way be known. Let your senses be wide awake. Listening to and feeling the whole moment Sensing the possibility of loving what is. Recognizing and allowing this changing life to live through you. Whatever arises. the silence that's listening. The space that's awake and aware inhabiting that. The edgeless heart that loves what is.
since there is no place large enough to contain so much happiness, you shrug. You raise your hands and it flows out of you into everything you touch. You are not responsible. You take no credit as the night sky takes no credit for the moon, but continues to hold it and share it and in that way be known. May all beings everywhere be held in loving-kindness, be filled with loving-kindness. May all beings be happy, know the natural joy of being alive. May all beings everywhere awaken and be free. Namaste.